0: Join myself and Jason at MicroConf 2011, June 6 and 7 in Las Vegas. For more information, go to microconf.com and enter in TEXING to get $100 off a ticket. Welcome to episode 129 of TechSing, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. On today's show, we're talking to James Alterchip for the second time, who we interviewed in episode 110. Hey, James, welcome to the show. Thanks for having
1: me here. Uh, I really appreciate coming on, and I'm glad you asked me again. I was just on a couple months ago. No. <laughs> well,
2: yeah. Well, we had, uh, we had such a good time I, you know, interviewing the first time. I knew I wanted to get you back, and uh, so it's great to have you here. I've become kind of an addict to, you know, on your blog or, you know, am I an addict on your blog? Am an addict for your blog?
1: I'm well, a G- probably you're addicted addict. to the blog.
2: <laughs> I'm addicted to the blog. Yeah, I read yes. it every day. It's, 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 it's you you really do a good job of,
0: uh, I don't know, bringing up new, uh new topics, new interesting ideas. Oh, thank you. So, and your, your following has just grown like crazy. I mean, it's, it's like, it's ho- gone hockey stick, your Twitter follow. Well,
1: I think what's happened is, is that. People got confused. Like I used to write a lot about stocks and would give stock tips, essentially. And then suddenly I started writing about these other topics, and my articles got began getting syndicated on other formats. Like like I'm on Lifehacker.com, I'm at Freakonomics.com, I'm on the ElephantJournal.com, which is like a yoga Buddhist blog. So I'm syndicated <laughs> in various places, and that's bringing in a new audience. Because on my blog, I'm not about stocks or finance at all. I'm really about Finding sort of the, the stresses that we assume are just normal in life and kind of underlining that they're not normal and we don't need to be stressed about these things. I'm trying to basically, through my own experiences of trying to not lead a miserable life, I'm trying to help people lead a better life. I, th- I think I might have a, a tagline for you. It would be no college,
2: no home, no stocks, and absolutely no bullshit.
1: Yeah, I like that tagline. Well, it's funny because it's related to almost like an insult that someone put on my blog. Um, Somebody said, so let me get this straight. You want your daughters to be lesbians, not go to college, never own stocks, never own a home uh, and never give to charity. And you're saying you're a good father. And, you know, the guy makes a a reasonable point that, you know, if you kind of take sort of what i'm saying at total face value it almost sounds like a net negative when in reality it takes some some thinking and going through the blog what i'm saying is a very positive message right well i i i would
2: i think it would be easy to confuse you with just being a contrarian but i don't think you're a contrarian it seems to me that the things that you advocate which are that go against conventional wisdom come from sort of a lot of your own personal pain, mistakes that you've made. And you said, all right, well, I tried that, and then it didn't work at all. And I can tell you the the X number of reasons why.
1: That's right. Like, I I don't consider myself in the category or the genre of the rant blog, where some professor at the University of Chicago finds something in the news today that he's going to rant about, and that's his blog post. Like, everything, or just about everything I write about, comes from personal stories where deep emotions were felt by me. And most of the time, those emotions were one of pain. So, you know, and and then a lot of kind of the, I don't know if I call it advice or conclusions that I come out of this, I I then put on the blog along with the story. So I don't know if that's contrarian or just me trying to figure things out, you know, while I write.
2: What does your wife uh, think about the no college idea, especially for your daughters?
1: Well, look, the reality is student loan debt has gone up so much faster than any other kind of debt or inflation out there. I mean, student loan debt, I don't know if you know this, student loan debt for the first time ever is higher than all credit card debt and all homeowner debt. So we've had such a crisis on credit and homeowning debt recently, but people completely ignore the fact that student loan debt is even worse and they forget about it because it's part of this American dream or American religion, where uh, we sort of believe that if you don't go to college, you could never, ever be a success. So how dare he suggest that my child not go to college. But I think the reality is, if an achievement-oriented, ambitious, intelligent young person uh, got a five-year head start over their peers, they're going to end up being a lot more successful. And you know, people come back to me and say, well, how is she going to learn? Or how is he going to learn how to think? Well, I don't necessarily think professors in college teach that. I don't think kids learn how to think in college. I, for myself personally, I didn't learn how to think. I don't know if I know how to think yet, but I kind of ramped up later on in my twenties and thirties and from 18 to 22, I don't know if I was, if I was ready for it, despite the fact that I got into a men's dead.
0: my, My exact same experience as well. So Yeah, completely. And it's not
1: just your same experience. It's everyone's same experience. Very few people, I think, um, really benefit from college other than learning a few things socially. And we all know what those are. And, you know, (laughs) and that's that. Yeah, I, I was thinking that the other day. I was, you
2: know, I, I keep coming with these ideas for blog posts. Some of them are off topic for stuff that I normally write about, which would be, you know, talking about what is truth or what is what do we really know and what is evil in the world. And these are questions that that sort of are abstract, but they they start with things that are happening now in our in our world and things that frustrate me. And I tried, I'm trying to sort of back away from it in a, in a more abstract way and understand what is really going on and how to describe it. But when I was in college, you know, writing a paper on, say, what is justice and and referencing Plato or Rousseau or something. I mean, it was just to get the paper done, to get it off my back so that I could get a decent grade and move on.
1: Right. It's not like you you might not even remember anything about Plato at this point. Like, I'll tell you, things that I was passionate about when I was six or seven years old, I remember much more clearly than I remember even my classes in college that I paid you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars for. So, and and by the way, I paid for every semester of college I went to. I paid for all my expenses by working. I borrowed for every semester. So I really know what it's like to graduate with with this debt. And students now are graduating with double the debt. It's horrible.
0: So what's your solution then um, for people who basically don't go to college? What's the answer?
1: Well, there's two solutions. One is um, there's kind of the macro solution where... Just having this discussion changes the supply and demand equation. It, it, you know, price is, is always, and price in any market is always motivated by supply and demand. So if we, ha- the more the more this discussion happens, the more demand is going to be reduced, the more price goes down, and that's helpful to everybody. But on a micro level, the alternatives are, you know, find other ways to learn how to think and to get more experience and to appreciate life and to learn the value of the dollar uh, without having to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars and putting yourself in debt. So for instance, travel the world or you know, take up painting and become an artist or become a salesman or start a business. You know, my last business that I started, I started with a, a few thousand dollars. You don't you don't need that much money. Now, not every kid has a few thousand dollars to spend, but that's like that's crazy also using that as an argument because college itself costs hundreds of thousands of dollars now. So one way or the other, you're going to spend some money. So I'm just looking at alternatives where you're going to spend 1 50th the money and you're going to learn maybe 10 times as much more. So
0: net, net, there's, there's huge benefits. So what specifically are you going to do with your own kids then?
1: Well, my kids are 12 and 9. But let's just say, let's ramp them up six years and say they're starting to be college age. And, and let's say they have the same interest they have right now. Right now, they are obsessed with manga comic books. And they draw. They sit around. They read manga comic books all day. They draw their own manga comics. So if if they still have that same interest at 18, I would say, look, we'll figure this out. We'll 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 go to Japan. You'll work for a manga comic book company for free, even as an apprentice, and you'll learn how that business really works. Or I'll pay for lessons. Somebody who's an expert at manga comic books will come over here and teach you how to even draw better and you'll get a an instant network you'll have a 5 year head start on anybody else who's going to college who is spending tons more money who wants to get into the manga comic book business
0: but isn't it isn't there a danger though that they'll end up not not fully rounded
1: well again i i don't know if i got fully ra- well rounded uh out coming out of college i i don't think i mean look i don't think necessarily we ever get fully well rounded but I think it really took me a long time. I've switched careers many times. I've switched jobs. I've switched, I've switched everything in my life many times since college, you know, and it, it wasn't college that got me well-rounded. It was having these experiences after college that really sort of rounded me out at least as much as I am now. So again, you're going to get from 18 to 22, those years, you're going to get a lot of experience. You're going to get well-rounded one way or the other. College is almost the worst way. I just spent the ages of six to 18 with the same demographic people going to school and sitting in a school nine hours a day. Now you're telling me I'm going to now go with that same demographic again for four more years, sitting in a school, you know, for nine hours a day. So I don't necessarily think college is the right way to get well-rounded if you've already spent 12 years doing the exact same thing. Interesting. Um, But but I, I want to get back to what you were saying though, about, you've been thinking about this blog post about, you know, what is evil? You, you implied you were starting to look at this in a, in a general way, you know, and looking at the world and looking at news and so on. I would take, I would take that a step further and say that the, the only way you can write that blog post is to, and the, the, in my view, the correct way to write that blog post is to look at yourself personally. When, when have you been evil? When, when were you a bully as a kid or when were you when when did you do the wrong thing in business and admit to it and confess to it and and bleed for us the reader and then explore evil through 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 that question um and that's how you you start to answer it rather than looking at you know was Osama bin Laden evil or not because we we can't answer that i mean we obviously know the answer but it's a different type of answer
2: right 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 um yeah my, my thought was originally was if you could create a catalog of evil, like, you know, they talk about degrees of evil. um, Like what is more evil? And to me, it seems like evil can be measured in what you do um, to your own advantage to somebody else's disadvantage. So if let's say we take Jack Bauer, 24, right? He tortures, he's torturing some guy for a few minutes because it might save the uh, the city from being blown up with a nuclear bomb. And you might say, hey, I don't believe in torture, but then you might be able to say, well, that wasn't strictly evil, <laughs> right? But if you said some guy goes and tortures somebody just because it amuses him, right? <laughs> minor, minor minor, advantage to himself, major disadvantage to somebody else. And you could ramp it up. He goes and tortures 1,000 people just for his own amusement. That's Then you're getting extreme evil. So I'm just like, warning, could you come up with sort of a way of of discussing degrees of evil and then ranking things based on that?
1: Well, you know, but it's interesting again, then it's so theoretical, like you you ask kind of almost academic questions and inspire debate and we all think about it, but I would again get to the point and and this is going to sound silly for a second, but when have you personally tortured somebody like what, tell me the story, what happened and, and how did it get resolved and how did you recognize that what you were doing is evil to the point where you're writing about it now? I don't pretty think
2: much. Pretty like, much, whenever I do a discussion show with Justin, I think
0: <laughs> I'm being, the way well, you're speaking kind of sounds as if you're being a, a writing professor right now.
1: Exactly, and I think I think actually that's what the blogging world almost needs—not necessarily me as a professor, but to really kind of take the next step and become uh, a, a real, you know, art form where we ask these questions that that touch the soul. So. So again, asking about Jack Bauer is something we can all relate to. We watch a show. It's interesting. We think about these issues. But what's really interesting to me is when you tell me what you've done, and obviously, you probably haven't you know strapped anyone to an electric chair and started torturing them. But you know, in some psychological ways who knows what you've done to a girlfriend or whatever.
0: As a kid, you've probably done something to an animal or something like that. An animal (laughs) or or an insect or an insect or something, right? Or
1: or look, you know, when I was seven years old, okay, if I was not like I'm a big kid or a bully or anything, but sometimes you would make fun of kids and, and that's mean and nasty and they would cry and, uh, and you feel bad about it. And or you might not. Now I feel bad about it. So what's so what exactly happened there? And and why did you do it? And is that evil? And how do you grow out of that? I think that to me is is interesting because it's something that's really personal. It's something that all 250 million people in the country relate to personally. And and I and I think that's an interesting question.
0: Isn't the only way to grow out of it just I feel I felt bad. I felt guilty. So that's the so I stopped doing it.
1: Yes, but sometimes sometimes it takes longer than others, and sometimes people don't even Sometimes people forget, you know, we deny it. Like I'm a nice guy now. I would never be a bully right now. But when I was seven years old, you were the meanest kid on the block. Yeah. I would make fun of certain categories of people just the same way. Some categories of people would make fun of me. And, you know, again, how do we work through this now? I'm not, I'm not giving a complete answer because that's where a blog post comes in, where there's some bridge there that that gets built but I, I would start from an, an intensely personal angle that we can all relate to. I think that's one of the reasons I really enjoy
2: writing because while you do tackle abstract concepts, bigger questions, you, ta- you do attack it from a, you know, in, in sort of the frame of a personal story. And I know the few posts that I've written that, um, I've actually only written like four or five posts, but the, the ones that did the best were personal stories where I, you know, learned a lesson.
1: You know, I made a yeah, mistake. Like and and I'll give an example. Like I've been, on, we've all, all three of us have been entrepreneurs, you know, on many different occasions and there's some failures or some successes. So I wrote a post, you know, and I've written a lot of posts describing some of my failures and some posts describing some successes. It gives me then almost the permission to say, okay, now I'm going to write the hundred rules for being an entrepreneur. And right up the front, I'm, I admit I'm not Larry Page. I'm not Mark Cuban, but I've done this, this, and this I've, I've bled. And so here's the hundred rules that I've learned. And so now I have no excuse. I mean, I'm in, in a sense, I have an excuse. I'm sorry. I, I have an excuse. No one can say, Oh, well, who's this guy? I've just said, I've just bled. I've experienced it. I've experienced the pain. I've experienced the pleasure. So these are just my hundred rules. If you don't like them, you know, whatever, but this is what I've learned.
2: Yeah. One of my favorite descriptions of um, what an expert is, is someone who's made every possible mistake in a particular area or category. So, if you made enough mistakes as an entrepreneur, you've sort of become an expert, right? <laughs> because you tried everything that doesn't work. Exactly. So, it sounds like you're having a blast with your blog. I mean, I I get the impression that it's one of your favorite things, just by not only the frequency with which you write, but just the way you write. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got started and 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 maybe how it's evolved for you?
1: Well, it's kind of funny. A few years ago, I actually just described this in the blog, but a few years ago, um. Someone randomly on my birthday uh, bought me the domain name jamesaldescher.com and turned it over to me. Actually, it took me two years for me to contact him back. It's kind of funny. I didn't mention wow. this. He he wrote to me and said, I've been a reader of your stuff for about five years. Really enjoy your work on stocks and finance. I heard you write that it was your birthday. So I bought you jamesaldescher.com. I didn't respond to him until three years later. And I said, you know, I think I'll take that gift now. And, uh, he he thought he, he was like, wow, that's the longest delayed response to an email I've ever got.
2: Well, you do have like what, like 10,000 unanswered uh, emails in your inbox or something like that. I'm
1: going to look right now because it changes 110,229.
2: So I should feel honored that you responded to our invitation to be on the show. That's amazing.
1: Exactly. Yes. So, so, uh, uh, Oh, actually, I, just speaking of that, you made me look at my email box now. And, uh, <laughs> so pa- now you're pa- all distracted. <laughs> Paul Kodrowski just wrote me, uh, uh, I see you're off the, the list meth, meaning, uh, my last 13 posts weren't list posts. He was accusing me of doing, two uh, posts. Get link bait posts. Yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. the reality is, those are the most popular posts. So you got to go back and forth. But, yeah. uh, uh, anyway, so, so I got the domain name, JamesAltershire.com from this guy. And, but I didn't know what to do with it. Like my my wife actually kept saying, "You need to do a blog." And then a friend of mine, Tim Sykes, who's got a very popular, uh, stock related blog in business, he kept saying, "You've got to do a stocks blog. You've got to do a newsletter. You can make a ton of money. Sell DVDs of yourself talking about stocks." And I didn't really want to do any of this. But then uh, suddenly, I don't know what happened. Like suddenly, around last October or November, I said, "You know." All through the '90s and late '80s, I wanted to be a writer. Like I wanted to. I wrote tons of novels, short stories. Nothing got published because they were all bad. I read thousands of books, so I kind of put in, I would say, my 10,000 hours of of writing, even if I wasn't necessarily good. And I said, you know what? I don't think people need to know whether Apple is a buy or not. That's BS. Can I can I say BS on this? Are you are you? uh, You can even say bullshit if you want. Okay. That's bullshit. No one (laughs) needs to know whether NVIDIA is a better buy than IBM or Microsoft. Like, nobody should even be buying stocks, really. That's not going to make them happy. So So given that I have an audience that I've built up over years, how can I do something that actually provides value to them? And I really started to write what I think really provides value. And when I say write, it's like with a capital W, I really focus on the writing. So before every post, I probably... I probably read for about two hours before I do any post, And I only read writers who I think have a very strong voice. And then I sit down and I really try to think, well, what, when did I need help in my life? And what happened to me then? What was going through my head? And then from there, I start the writing. So I would say the blog takes up about... You know, eight eight to ten hours a day, because then I do some follow up. I respond to comments. I respond to emails. I, I probably respond to about a hundred emails a day now. People asking me questions off the blog, or advice, or whatever, and then I respond to comments on the blog. I respond to comments that appear on Facebook and and Twitter, and so on. Wow! So it seems like it's it's grown
2: into something that you might not have imagined when you started. I mean, you know, if it takes totally. that much of your time, what? I don't. Do you even have a goal for it, or I mean, does it, it doesn't even need to be money a money making venture? If you're spending much time on it, because you, you have other ways of making income, what's how does it fit into that category?
1: Well, you know, I, I I have no end game for it, and part of the reason is is uh, you know, I sort of like Mark Zuckerberg's approach when he was building Facebook, and I'm I'm not comparing this at all to that, but I, it's just this one philosophical point he sort of put off his end game as long as possible. And that made Facebook as big as possible. So I'm just wondering if I put off an end game as long as possible, uh, maybe that will make my blog as as how I feel it could be as great as it could be. And I was talking to a guy the other day, Jer- Jerry Colonna, who used to be a, a venture capitalist. And he was saying, you know, maybe you should even just come up with like a crazy end game. So at least, you know, you're not going out of the bounds of, Something that could hurt you <laughs> later, like if I write about things that are too crazy, maybe that will hurt in an, an eventual uh real end game, you know too crazy in the posts if if I write too mu- too much crazy stuff and right. it, that's not a bad idea and I, I think my my crazy end game is that I really want to help everybody in the country be as happy as possible, so that 's my my crazy end game now is that I want to help you- two hundred and fifty million people be happier because you said
2: that. Uh, I think you know, in one of your posts that more people read your blog or you can influence more people with a single blog post than you were able to with any of your previous books, just in terms of pure, sheer numbers.
1: Yeah. And I was even talking to to my wife about this last night. We we have a really good friend, uh, Arthur Nersesian. He is one of the best uh, novelists I know. He wrote uh, a novel uh, you may or may not have heard of called The Fuck Up, uh, which was sort of a local <laughs> bestseller in, in New York. Mm-hmm. And then um, mm-hmm about a guy experiencing going broke in the East Village. And then he's written a string of novels since then. And he's really, really a brilliant, brilliant writer. But I would say every single day now on my blog, I reach more people than he's done, maybe with all his novels combined. And it's just a shame that that's what happens in the the book industry and in many industries, really. But I, I feel like I'm starting to have a little bit of an effect. Just the fact now that... You know, everybody's having this discussion about college. I feel I'm a little bit of a part of that. I've been writing about this issue for for years, and now it's finally being discussed in major media.
0: I remember the last time that we spoke, um, I I was saying, "Well, why don't you get into video, video on the web?" And you said, "Well, you know, I have a face for print, but um, looking at your site, you, you're not that bad looking. You could you could <laughs> you could do video. Why I don't you?" It...
1: That's funny. Well, you know, I'm still thinking about it. Like I, a friend of mine, um, is is you know, a, a very good video guy. He's an Emmy winning TV guy. And he's, he was just uh, laid off from uh, an internet company where he was doing video. And we were discussing this. And I said to him, you know, there's a lot of bloggers out there who could probably benefit from your expertise where you could make, help them turn their blogs into semi-Vlogs or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, and he thought that was a good idea. And I said, why, instead of, you know, working for the man again, why don't you find just like 10 bloggers Charge you know one or two k a month and you know or maybe a little more three k a month whatever and now you're you're in business and you've diversified your income and you're not you you know no no one person is your master and uh, you're ready to go
0: but your silly your silly end game right that you just mm-hmm. described there making two hundred fifty million Americans happy that's just in my opinion not possible through print but it is possible through video so it, you could you could perhaps get a daily vlog going and then get that syndicated to actual terrestrial television as well. Then you really could reach the 250 million that you want to.
1: That's interesting. The problem I have is, and let's discuss this in in the context of your, um, you know, of texting. Uh, do people watch video or and listen to audio on the internet? I don't know if they do. I mean, I oh, watch definitely. YouTube videos. I watch like funny ones. I watch music videos. I, if if I'm watching CNN, like if I click on cnn.com right now, I'm going to read the articles. I'm not going to watch the videos because it's just too. Takes too long, and we're very fast oriented when we're on the internet. Yeah, it's only when you're
2: sort of in lean back mode, whether lean forward mode. So if you're if you're yeah. if you're sitting on the couch or in bed, you're yeah, maybe you want might be willing to just sit back and watch something and get information sort of in a, uh, a less efficient in a less efficient manner. But uh, I, I think it's true. When th- we've, we've made this point a couple times. I mean, the amount of time and effort we put into texting, you know, it's amazing how hard it is to grow a listenership. But uh, you know, I spent. A, a very small fraction of uh, of that amount of time working on a few blog posts and got massive readership um, just in a, with a few hits. And I think Justin had the same effect. So I think yeah. you're right. I mean, it's just people are much more willing to read than it is they are. It's not like within their workflow. I mean, some people like to listen or maybe watch things on the web, but I think for most people, it's just not part of their sort of habit, Their their, their the way they work on the web.
1: I mean, one thing you guys can do is... Um, you know, we can, you you can subscribe to one of those conference call systems that will transcribe your calls. And so then you do these interviews on one of these transcription conference calls. And so then you have the transcript side by side with just a little bit of editing. You have the transcript side by side with the audio. So people could choose which way they're going to, they're going to quote unquote, listen to an interview.
2: Right, right. And so one thing I wanted to ask you about, which is you, you, we, we sort of uh, brushed over, was the was how you're sort of infiltrating the mainstream media, or at least some of your ideas are. And I think you've talked about the no college and the not owning a home, and maybe even not buying stocks on on uh, some of the um, financial um, right
0: news programs like MSNBC. Can we bookmark the not owning a home? I'd like to come back to that. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. <laughs> that, that's that's one of my bullet points here. But you know, And even NPR, right? You went on NPR to talk about not, not going to college?
1: That's right. I went on NPR uh, Friday. Uh, when did I do it? Monday.
2: Yeah. So what's interesting about that, first of all, is how did they find you? I mean, is it simply through the fact that you, your writing is starting to show up on these big sites? Did, they just, did one of the producers just run across it? Or, or, or how did that happen? Yeah.
1: Well, one of the producers ran across it. My, my opinions, with my name kind of aside it, on college, have appeared on... Obviously, Yahoo Tech Ticker, where where I go a lot, or da- the Daily Ticker, it's called now, um, and AOL, AOL's front page. I did a video, so a lot of people over. I would say between those two sites alone, three million people watch videos uh, describing my opinions on college. But also, the Washington Post wrote an, a very controversial article about not going to college, where my opinions were featured, and New York Magazine. I think in particular, NPR read a recent New York Magazine piece, which featured my mine and Peter Thiel's opinions on college. So they got it from there. I don't know if they specifically saw it on my on my blog, but that's where I've been writing about it the most, of course.
2: All right. Well, why don't we jump into the uh the related uh topic of not uh, owning a home, right, Justin? You want to know about that?
0: Yeah, because that sounds that sounds cheap. <laughs> it sounds like yeah, a, good, I, a good plan already.
2: Yeah yeah, I I think I think that is one topic that'd be particularly appealing to people now after what happened over the last, I don't know what, three or four years. People will be open
0: to Listen to that. Uh, am I guessing it's basically like like whether you buy or lease a car kind of concept?
1: Yes, almost. Except a home, there's a lot more. There's, a, I would say buying or leasing a car is two-dimensional in the sense that like, I, I, I lease a car uh, I don't own, but for my daily behavior, there's no difference whether I own or lease a car. Like Maybe financially, it's a little different for me, but in terms of daily behavior, there's no difference. Whereas owning or or renting a home, there's huge difference in, in your daily behavior. Uh, for instance, my dishwasher doesn't work. So I call my landlord, he buys a new dishwasher, he arranges for the plumber, he arranges for the drop-off, he makes sure he's around so the dishwasher gets installed. Like that makes a big, I I, I don't like to deal with that stuff. So that makes a big difference for my daily behavior. And I'm just giving this small example on, on renting versus home, home ownership. But you know, the other thing about home ownership is, I think, I mean, there's there's so many different ways to look at this, but largely it's a horrible, horrible investment just in terms of the characteristics of it. You you leverage up too much. You're not diversified. You're incredibly illiquid. Like you can't get your money out when you need it. Uh, so, And there's hidden costs. So there's property taxes that may or may not go up over the next 20 or 30 years. And there's maintenance, which is impossible to predict. So the actual cost of home ownership when you factor everything in, is always greater than you initially thought. So, and that doesn't even include the time opportunity cost of that. So, I just think owning a home, I would never do. I, w- I would rather rent.
0: But what about the fact that a lot of homes, you know, can build up equity? Like, for example, I've, I've got a house in England and I've, you know, got some, I've certainly equities grown in that over the last five years.
1: Sure. Well, look, housing itself might be a great investment, in which case you can get the exact same benefits by buying stocks that are totally correlated to housing prices and you can leverage up as much as you want. You know, you can buy options, which are essentially leveraged vehicles. And, and when you own a housing stock, you get paid a dividend instead of paying property taxes and maintenance and so on. So you can get the exact same benefits of your house in, Eng- in England simply by buying uh, stocks that are linked to equity, you know, the housing prices in, in uh, England.
0: But what about the answer? When so someone says, "Well, look, if you're renting, then you're just sinking money, and that money's going nowhere." Whereas if you're buying, you're investing your money.
1: Well, th- two, two answers. One is when you own, you 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 gave a down payment straight to the bank, and that down payment you're never making money on again. So I have, you know, let let's say you're buying a five hundred thousand dollar house, and you put two hundred thousand do- dollars down. That money is gone. Like you're not, you can't see it anymore for the lifetime of your. Home ownership, you know, unless you refinance and that's another issue. But so that $200,000 is gone. I'm making money on my 200,000. I've got that cash in the bank. I could do whatever I want with it. I'm making money on it over the time. Whereas you just threw away all of those uh, benefits of uh, having that cash in the bank. The other thing is, again, property taxes, you're flushing down the toilet every year. Maintenance, you're flushing down the toilet every year. I'm not I don't have that problem and interest. Now, some of that's tax deductible, but a lot of it isn't. So, uh, the interest on your mortgage, you're flushing down the toilet every year. I'm not by renting. So I I don't buy into that argument. And you could say, well, in 30 years, I'm going to own a home and you're going to have nothing. Well, a, I'm going to have all the equity I built up by never putting down that down payment. And by investing in, you know, various venture companies or stocks or whatever. And, uh, B, nobody owns a house for 30 years. The average turnover on a house is five years right now. So then, on average, that argument doesn't work.
2: Well, then you also have to factor in the transaction costs of buying and selling a house, which is what, 6%? So it's 3% to the buying agent and 3% to the selling agent.
1: Right. So so th- there's there's initial closing costs when you buy and there's, a, there's closing costs when you sell. And let's say altogether probably more like eight or 9% when all is said and done, because you've got to buy title insurance. There's all sorts of things you have to do, not to mention initial maintenance to fix up the house after most people do some initial maintenance. So let's even say, and I'm being even conservative, it's nine, 10%. Now you have now historically over time, houses have returned about 2% a year. Now I'm not saying over any one 10 year period where but I'm saying over the past hundred years, houses have returned 2% a year. Uh, you just threw away five years, uh, just by just by buying and then selling.
0: Well, I mean, if you buy in a metropolitan area like for example, London, I mean, historically it's been between ten and twenty percent, certainly for the last fifty years. So
1: Yeah, so that's a lot.
0: <laughs> but no, but what I'm saying is ten or twenty percent growth.
1: Oh oh I see what you're saying. Yeah, okay, but again, there's housing there's stocks that are that are exactly linked to that, and I would rather I would always rather have my cash liquid than illiquid. So if you have a choice of two investments, one where you can cash out anytime you want and the other where you're completely illiquid if times get hard, uh, I would always pick the investment where, you know, again, and returns are the same otherwise. I would always pick the investment that's more liquid. Well, what are those
2: stocks? What are they called? Justin, let me just say one thing. You know, one, we had this discussion about, Ah, uh, two weeks ago, we talked about uh, how we got into debt. Uh, our respective stories. Yeah, and my story was based on the fact that we bought a house, and it was August of two thousand and seven. And I started reading the writing on the wall about the no prime. Uh, I mean, the prime. Um, the uh, what just? I'm sorry, the subprime mortgage uh, crisis that it wasn't contained. And I remember having a conversation with my wife, like, we need to sell right. Now, I mean, like we need the train is even the station. We got like a month or two to get out of this thing. Otherwise we're done. And she, she didn't, I don't think she kind of bought my argument or that was that serious, but it still took us four months probably to get the thing fixed up, get an agent, get on the market by the time it was too late we couldn't sell. And it was it, yeah. you know, already in 2008. And, and so that was a perfect example. Like, well, people say, well, why do I care if it's a liquid or it's not liquid? It's because the world changes. And, you know, I knew what the right thing was to do at that moment, but it didn't matter because you, it wasn't like I just went on, you know, E-Trade and, 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 uh, clicked a button and sold or bought into a new position. I had, you know, getting out of a house, um, or a condo just was a huge deal and it just couldn't move quickly enough.
1: Yeah, it's a shame and look, maybe, you know, 10, 20, 30 years down the road, there there will be financial innovations where you can buy and sell uh your individual mortgage or shares in your equity. You know, some there's some thought into thing, you know, innovations like that, but it doesn't happen at the moment. And uh look, I I rent and I own. I've I I own uh a house then got a divorce. I still own the house and my current wife and I rent at the moment. And look, I did the same thing you did. I bought in August 07, actually the exact <laughs> month. And so we should have done a deal. <laughs> look, now we, been. now we just have to, now we just all have to ride it out. Like eventually housing prices will, will go higher. And, uh, you know, I don't think housing is a bad investment. Uh, you know, but I would again, rather own uh, housing affiliated stocks than the actual home
0: itself. What, what are those stocks? What are they called? How do you find them?
1: Um, well, you know, many REITs, you know, real estate investment trusts trade on the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ. Uh, for instance, there's one called EQR, which is Equity Residential Properties or something like that, where you know, they're linked to the prices of apartments and condos. And wh-
0: what's it called? REITs? REITs? What did you call it? REITs,
1: R-E-I-T-S. And REITs. it's a type of stock that trades on the New York Stock Exchange. Oh, I see. And, or there's uh, home builder stocks that are totally linked to housing prices like Toll Brothers, that would be an interesting uh, blog post to say, to, you know, something like how to get
2: the benefits of owning a house without owning a house, or something like that, and, and discuss some of these yeah. options.
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree. Maybe I'll. Uh, that could be a possibility. <laughs> I'm gonna start emailing you my my daily suggestions. <laughs> yes, I would appreciate it because I, texting, sometimes, I, the I voice. So, sometimes I don't know what to do on a particular day, so it's always good to get suggestions. I think that's going to have to be the title of our show in general. I think we need to change it from texting to just
2: unsolicited advice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, okay, so this, this, this rolls into another topic, which is the uh, not-to-own-stocks advice. Um, so in one sense, you're saying if you do want to participate in the, in the overall appreciation of home prices, by these REITs, which are in the stock market. But that goes against another thing we are suggesting, which is don't play the market. Don't get into stocks. You know, do anything else other than that, because you're probably going to lose money and, and most financial... Um, options are a scam in one way or another. I'd like to hear, you, you know, talk about that a little bit more.
1: Well, let's, let's think about the two groups of people who make money in the market. And there's a third group also, which I'll briefly mention, but there's two groups of people that make a lot of money in the market. There's the one group that owns most of their net worth in one stock and they hold that stock forever. So Bill Gates Owns, Microsoft, owns an enormous amount of Microsoft stock. It's it's his, almost his entire portfolio and he's held it for 30 years. And there's Warren Buffett who's held Berkshire Hathaway stock for over 50, you know, just about 50 years. So so these people have almost all of their net worth is in one stock and they hold it forever. That's not for most people, but that's how you really build wealth in the stock market. There's, there's almost no other way. The other group is in the complete opposite direction. It's the people who build their computer and their trading systems right next to the stock exchange so that they're making trades, thousands of trades a second. And, and it takes them like a trillionth of a second to make a trade because they're, 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 their wires, their computer cables are literally attached to the computer systems of the stock exchange. So those people make money every single day, day in and day out. And it's a race to the bottom because whoever can get closer, faster, stronger uh, wins the race. And so everybody in the middle, mom and dad at home and so on, historically don't make money. Even when the stock market goes up, mom and dad sitting at home don't make money in the stock market because psychologically, they sell at the lows and they buy back in at the highs. That's just what's happened for the past 100 years. So even if the stock market goes up 9% a year or 3% a year or 5% of the year, the average... Player of the stock market uh, makes much less than that. It probably makes negative. You know, then right. there's, a third, there's, there's the third group too, which is making money by illegal activity, and that's a much larger portion of the stock market than people can can possibly even imagine and
0: conceive of. So, how should we invest money instead then? If if, if it's not in houses and it's not in stock market, what's left?
1: Well, I do think you can you can if you have the psychology for it. You can take a a basket of stocks, like let's say you really believe, let's say you want to own a home, but you don't like all these negative things about home ownership, but you really feel housing is a good investment. You've done your research and, and you think housing is a good investment. You can buy a basket of these REITs with the idea that I am not going to sell. If there's a financial crisis, I'm not going to sell. I'm just going to ride right through it. And if you have the psychology for it, then, then go for it, you know, or or just buy an index of the entire stock market, which historically goes up over time, and just promise yourself, if you can, I am never ever going to sell this. But very few people can do that. So, so, so what ends up happening is, how do you make money if you have some cash? The reality is, you can't really like most people cannot make money on their cash. So you have to either uh, start a business or put it in bonds or some something that pays you a very steady interest rate and not try to get wealthy off of your extra cash. Work hard and generate cash by improving your career and, you know, either either in a, in a corporation by rising up or starting a business.
2: Yeah, you said that, you mentioned this in one of your articles about, uh, maybe it was about the no, the, about not buying stocks, which is that as an alternative, invest in yourself and that you'll you'll get a 10,000% return in a sense that the experience you have, the things you learn, the people you meet, um, the opportunities that arise from doing something and following a passion far outweigh any benefit you get from even, an a, 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 you know, owning a handful of stocks that happen to go up.
1: That's right. So, so for instance, let's say, and, and you can say, well, not everyone can do that. No, not everyone uh, can invest in themselves and, and be entrepreneurial, but let's think about that for a second. Let's say, you're a secretary at some big corporation. Well, there's got to be some extra computer skills you can learn or take a class in that suddenly make you that much more valuable in your company and to your bosses, colleagues, and so on. And so then you can start offering these services within your company, it makes your job more secure, it makes you more likely to get a promotion, and so on. And again, your returns are much greater than the 5% a year on average you could hope to get if you're a master of the stock market. So, so again, always investing in yourself is the best way to use that extra cash. And by the way, there's, it's nice to just have cash in the bank. So this way, if there's a financial crisis like 2008, everyone's crying themselves to sleep, but you're like, ah, I just have cash in the bank. I don't have any worries.
2: In in, in in terms of sort of financial advice, I'd be curious uh, what your answer is to this question. Justin and I talked uh, have talked on the show about health insurance. And one thing that uh, my wife and I uh, decided to do was to create an, uh, to set up an HSA or health savings account. So that rather than putting money, you know, just paying, you know, whatever, $500 a month to an insurance company, we put $500 a month into a bank account. And that backs, uh, you know, our that's sort of our equity into our health Account so that when when we go to the hospital when there's a bill we pay out of our account and and so that it that money never it, it, it's still ours I mean it, it's not like it disappears so if I pay money to my health insurance company and no one's really sick and five years go by that, all that money's gone um, whereas if if we kept it in a bank account and maybe only some of it was gone then we the, we still have the rest I mean have you looked into that or you have any no
1: no I, I like that idea though particularly you know basic healthcare costs are a commodity. So, you know, Walmart is opening up uh, basic healthcare facilities all over the country, one state at a time. And, you know, the the cost of having a checkup, an eye exam, uh, certain medicines are getting a lot cheaper. So I like that idea, uh, particularly since, you know, if you're a healthy person and so on, what, what you have to be careful of, I guess, is long-term healthcare. Like if you get into... Uh, a car accident where you're out of action for a long time, or if you get cancer where you need, you know, some expensive therapy, that's the risk you're taking, which insurance helps, but maybe it's cheaper if you kind of uh, divide it up a little.
2: Yeah. The, um, you know, actually my, my wife is going to do all the research, so she knows more about it than I do, but I I know this. So in order to have an HSA, you have to purchase, I think what it's called, like high risk health insurance or, or something. So it's like it, it, it handles like what it basically buys us is that we have a really high deductible, like we might have a $5,000 deductible or something like that. And then anything else is covered by the insurance. So rather than paying, say, $800 a month for health insurance for our family, we pay 200 and then we pop, put the other 600 in the bank. Um, and that's sort of how it works.
1: I love that. That's a great idea. I'm going to do that. Thank yeah, you. I, yeah. To listen to the device. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> well, we try and add value where we can. <laughs> yes, that's huge. <laughs>
2: So I, I, one thing you mentioned, which I thought would be interesting to hear more about, is the rampant corruption um, on Wall Street or in finance. And you've been in and around that world a lot as a hedge fund manager, a, man, a manager of fund of funds, as a financial pundit and a writer for thestreet.com. So if anyone should have any insight on this, it would be you. I guess the only way we could it would be better is if you worked for the SEC for a while. But I guess... That I don't know.
1: I, 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 and I don't mean to be critical of the SEC. They do a very good job at tracking down the criminals that they want to track down. But why didn't they find Bernie Madoff? They were in his offices. It was so obvious he was a criminal. And of course, it's easy for me to say that after the fact, but I say this also by looking at what happened in the situation. Not a single institution was invested in Bernie Madoff, you know, despite the fact that he had, you know, $60 billion supposedly under management. So, Clearly, every institution that did due diligence on him knew, knew he was a criminal. Otherwise, he would get some institutions, but, but zero institutions were in him. So, so there was something wrong there, and, and a lot of people knew it, but the SEC, who actually had the power to investigate all of his documents, they couldn't, they didn't find the fraud here. So, you know, and that was the biggest fraud ever. So imagine how many little frauds there are out there. There's, there's there's, billions and billions, maybe even a, a trillion dollars worth of fraud that's still out there. And it's undiscovered and no one's looking for it. Instead, they're trying to track down insider trading, which I still have yet to meet a single person who can tell me they were a victim of an insider trading crime. Um, but I know a lot of people who were victims of Bernie Madoff Enron Worldcom, people who killed themselves because they were victims of bernie Madoff so so there's real human tragedy that is is out there is still exists and is not being discovered. well what about um, sort of the
2: larger scale um, allegations of of corruption, sort of like J p Morgan uh, manipulating the silver market or you know all the allegations against um uh Goldman Sachs and I think with their relationship with Greece and creating and helping to create Greece's um uh, debt problem um I mean I mean that stuff is really large scale I mean do you think there's really do you think there's that stuff's bs or do you think there's something there what are your thoughts
1: some of it, yes. Some of it, no. I mean, I doubt J.P. Morgan was manipulating the silver market. Was Greece taking advantage? Was Goldman Sachs taking advantage of a situation in Greece to make money from their for their clients? Probably, and it was probably in in the gray area of legal. Um, again, there's 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 very few laws about all this stuff. It's very unclear what's illegal as opposed to unethical. Um, you know, so but yes, yeah, certainly. There's corruption at the largest institutions and there's corruption at the smallest institutions. And there's little guys also all day long, do, you know, doing corruption. There's, there's yeah. insider trading is everywhere. Uh, stock manipulation is everywhere. It's, it's so rampant, it's ridiculous.
0: James, what's your take on um, the oil prices at the moment, the, the way that that's going up?
1: Well, you know, it's so funny. Oil prices start going up, and this is why I don't read the news. I never ever open a newspaper. I don't read the CNN.com. I don't. I don't look at any news site. Oil prices go up, and uh, the first thing that happens is everybody's saying, "Oh no, oil is going to two hundred dollars a barrel. This is the worst thing in the world." Okay, when it was so clear that. The only reason oil prices initially were going up the way they were is because there was a military crisis essentially all over the Middle East. So when you see as that crisis kind of calmed down, oil prices now have calmed down. So people just don't know how to connect the news to reality. What happens is there's a little news report and then people go to the worst case scenario – Oh, there was an earthquake in Japan, by the way. Uh, but forget all about that for a second. Some one nuclear rod uh, is leaking, you know, six thousand feet deep into the ocean. Uh, the, the, all of Japan's going to explode. And so for two weeks, there, there's nonstop nuclear nuclear articles on every the headlines of every newspaper. What happened to all that? No one, nobody apologized. The media was completely wrong. Okay, a hundred percent wrong. There's not been. There's not been a single death from the nuclear accident there, which is amazing. Like you had the worst earthquake ever, practically, right on top of a nuclear reactor and nothing bad happened. Meanwhile, what really did happen was 28,000 people died and $300 billion worth of damage uh, was done. Not a single newspaper article about the real human tragedy here. And instead, it's just like, Oh I mean I knew people who actually moved away from San Francisco like they they spent two weekends in a hotel in Utah because they were afraid of nuclear radiation washing up on the shores of San Francisco Forgetting about the fact that we actually dropped a thousand nuclear bombs on Nevada and Utah in the 1950s. We detonated (laughs) hydrogen bombs right next to California, (laughs) which which have
2: half lives of like, what,
1: 10,000 years or something like that. Fifty million years. I mean, there's plutonium (laughs) in these things. So it's (laughs) just people are so crazy. So I, I can't you can't look at the newspaper. You can't read it. You can't make any decisions from it. They lie to you all the time. That's another example of of corruption and a scam
2: well, you know it's interesting i i I, I heard one time a description of of media which essentially is the answer to answer the question of their 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 fundamental role is to answer the question is of am I safe right and their answer generally is oh, we're not sure You better come back later and check again right It's yeah, looking kind funny. of looking kind of shaky, so you better come back at six and then eleven again and well, I- you know, oh, and certainly. that's why it seems like they're so there's such a willing partner in, in inflating the the uh, the danger of terrorism or the danger of drugs or danger of pedophiles and around every corner, I mean, which which then sort of um, I don't know, it kind of screws up our society because it gets so warped because everybody's so afraid of everything. And it's like um, Absolutely. And it's, it's
1: basically- and in that example, in, the, in that vein, how many people in Tokyo got got sick from eating uh, iodine tablets to protect themselves against nuclear radiation? People actually got sick because of all these articles about nuclear radi- radiation.
0: Oh, uh, wow. So the, so the news itself... Well, I mean, I often think that the, the news it basically does shape the way things happen. You know, it shapes it shapes history because... Oh, of course. Yeah. Because, we're, we're, you know, when the news is reporting on a certain, I don't know, company situation and then everyone sells the stock or buys the stock, then that causes the whole... It's like a chicken and egg feeding itself thing.
1: Yes, but what's happening, though... Um, which is changing it a little is a new, and this is a, a different analogy for the news. But the news is sort of like a dog that's backed into the corner. So suddenly, it's going to become as uh, even the most, you know, peaceful dog is suddenly going to become a ravaging, you know, panicked, violent animal while it tries to break free from the corner it's trapped in. And that's what the news is. The newspaper industry is dead, and they know it. And so they have to get more and more panicked and violent in order to survive and scrape their way by. And that still won't help. The wolves are still going to eat the dog, but it's just taking time. It's like anything. It's not a day or a month. It's over years. Well, it's like, I can't remember who, uh, who said this, but they said it was, maybe it was you. I think it was about
2: what's like watching the slow motion uh, train wreck of like Blockbuster video. And uh, yes. Who, who was the other company you brought, you mentioned? It was two. It's was Blockbuster. Uh, we borders. all knew it was going to happen. Wh- who was it? Borders. Books. Borders. Oh, yeah, right. Borders. Right. Because I just closed down the street from my house. Right. We're reading that. Right. So the slow motion, we all knew it was going to happen. We watched it in slow motion. And, you know, eventually it does.
1: Yeah. Music industry also—it's slow motion. It's in, it, the entire industry is dying. And you know what? Broadcast television—all going
0: to die. Okay, so so if if that if news as we know it, if media as we know it didn't exist, would we even be in the recession we're in right now?
1: Uh, well, that's a great question because I'll tell you, the news did a lot to panic. You know, of course, you know the United States lives on lives and dies on the faith of the dollar, and the news media. With headlines every day, Uh, the United States is about to default on its debt, Uh, Mm -hmm. was certainly creating a lot of panic. Even though our titles like that make no financial sense at all, because we could just print more money, and that's a whole other story. But uh, you know, I don't know. That's a that's a great question. Certainly, the news cycle is so much faster that you can panic a lot faster, also. So (laughs) it's it's
2: It's kind of funny. It it, it might it might come too fast. Like people panic so quickly, and then they're over in twenty four hours. Like whoo.
1: That freaked me out, yeah. but I'm over it. I'm moving on. <laughs> no, you know you know what's going to become the real media is thousands of tech zings and my blogs and, and other blogs. And hopefully that's a way people can assimilate, you know, a, a thousand different resources instead of three and make an informed decision instead of these crazy decisions that either the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal want you to have. And look, I've written for both places, so... I'm I'm not I'm sort of shooting myself in the head here but uh at the same time like you, you have to be very judgmental and critical of everything you see in the media
0: so but but it sounds like you want to become as big as the New York Times
1: Well potentially yeah I want to become bigger You know and and, and know, so do you guys Oh, of course, (laughs) yeah, or at least bigger than we are now—that's for sure. But so,
2: you know, the interesting issue that comes up when you talk about sort of this distributed media uh, idea. So. It, you know, there's always a danger when media is consolidated, which we see, we've seen happen. In which case, there's not enough voices. There's no, there's no dissenting opinions. There's just, uh, you know, there's like one or two opinions, and uh, and that's kind of it. And so we don't really get enough variety. We don't really see enough a tr- enough truth. And then, of course, you have corporations owning these media uh, companies, which then there's there's definitely some kind of uh, influence from you know corporate owners. So then the issue is, okay, let's go the other way. It's like, okay, well, there's no one. Sort of uh, paper or news site of record. There's just a lot of different facts and a lot of different opinions. In which case, you have a lot of people who have their own facts, and nobody's talking to anybody. Nobody's sure that they really know what they know. And and one thing um, I, I I brought up in a in a previous show, which is that there was a study done at University of Michigan and a follow up at uh, I think uh, Stony Brook, which is that when people were presented with facts and then there the are those facts are corrected later, the the, the corrected the corrections rarely take. Um, take shape. they really have any effect? People tend to hold on to those facts, and that the more information there is, the more the, the more the more uh, the more variety of sources, the more people hold on to their their original core beliefs that they do not change their mind. And then, furthermore. What was really interesting is that the people least likely to change their opinion were what they call elites—the most educated, intellectually sophisticated people. So your writers, your politicians, your scientists, your academics, because they're so used to being right that that they they're, that they're very resistant to changing their opinions with presented with new facts. And well, if you have that situation, what what's this? What happens?
1: Well, I I think there's nothing you can do about it. Like, I think uh, I think that's that's absolutely correct. People anchor themselves to their first opinions in the same way they anchor themselves to the first prices they hear in a negotiation. I mean, it's the same psychological uh, effect. And the key really is is to avoid having opinions. <laughs> so right. to, just con- <laughs> to just consciously say
0: impossible for Jason.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's just to consciously say, you know what? I'm gonna wake up. I know I'm gonna eat like between one and three meals a day. I'm going to try to enjoy as much of this day as possible. And that's it. Instead, if we're all arguing like Obama, this McCain, that, you know, Africa, Russia, oil, like it's just, it's just too much stress. None of that actually affects our life. Like my life doesn't change much. Uh, Like, like a couple weeks ago, Osama bin Laden uh, was killed. My life doesn't change at all from that. Uh, The flip side is, uh, you know, I wrote about it this morning, actually. Bristol Palin has plastic surgery. It's all over the news, but my life doesn't change as much. So the key is for me to be happy is to avoid as much of that as I possibly can, even though I'm inundated with it, and try to be happy in simpler ways. Right,
2: right. It's interesting that you link the, the, the you know, the idea that facts backfire. I think, I think they call it backfire with, um, uh, with anchoring. So, you know, because we've talked about that, too, about the psychological bias of anchoring. So when you're in negotiation, a lot of times people have a tendency to say, well, I, I want the, the other person to make the first offer, which is totally the mis- the wrong thing to do. You want to you want to anchor the debate and say, I'm going to put my number where it is, because if you and I are arguing about the price of something and you throw out one hundred thousand and then I say out twenty first and then I come back with twenty thousand and. My twenty thousand is gonna seem like a ridiculous concept. It's not even argued because you already said it a hundred thousand and vice versa. if I say twenty thousand, you're like, Lex and Jason, no way, it's a hundred then you seem ridiculous right is
1: well that, that uh you know i that's very interesting actually i I didn't really know that about negotiation and anchoring like I always was under the assumption make have the other guy make uh the first uh offer uh just in case you're too low, and they were thinking. Yeah high, but you make a lot of sense. Like, why don't you make like one advice I've given people is, is, um, make the first price, but make it a joke. So like, let's say if the obvious price for something is $10,000, go in there and say, okay, we're going to charge $50,000. Ha ha ha. And, uh, the other guy laughs and is like, oh my gosh, you gotta be kidding. And then you say, okay, no, but seriously, what do you think? And so you anchor them with something ridiculous and then it's hard for them to come back and say, "Well, we were thinking more like five hundred dollars."
0: Well, do you do you have an eBay strategy? I'm currently trying to sell my car on eBay. <laughs> uh,
1: no, I've never used eBay
2: once ever. You, you know, you know what's interesting about their anchoring cognitive bias is that, as it turns out, even if you're aware of the cognitive bias, like as we're discussing now, it, it doesn't affect it at all. You're still just as affected as so. If someone, if you go into a store. And it's originally priced at thirty dollars, but is discounted for 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 you know twenty five. Even if you really is only worth ten, you're like, wow, it's discounted. You know, it was up there. You know, we're, we're disaffected by it. It doesn't matter that we know about it. <laughs> it's like it's well, that was,
0: wasn't that like the study about the people going to the front of the queue. Like, all you have to say is, oh, I'm going to go to the front of the queue now, and everyone's much more willing to accept it than if you just go to the front of the queue. Well,
1: it, um, it's, no, it's, that's a different thing. It, it's funny though. That that is a different thing. That's the fact that people's brains are wired to always think you're telling the truth. So, <laughs> so, so if you say to them, uh, you know, if you're Bernie Madoff and you say, I'm going to return to you 9% a year, and you're never going to lose money. You you feel like this almost this incredible urge to believe him. And uh, it's like the star Wars thing. Like, Oh, you could ignore these droids. Like uh, <laughs> people just believe it. So they say, okay, that's fine. And, well, people- and you know, The the trick works. Like when I go into a bit, let's say I don't have an ID and in New York City, you need an ID now to go into almost every building. And if I just say, if I just, if I forget my ID at home and I go into the building and I say, I don't have my ID, but it's okay. You can let me up uh, most of the time, nine times out of 10, (laughs) they'll let me up. (laughs) Yeah. They, they did some, they did some, uh, studies
2: on this. where they had a bunch of students go around and, uh, and I guess New York on the subway. And they asked, they what they had to do was ask other people to give up their seat oh, okay excuse me can i sit there <laughs> and it turns out it would, i mean it was very hard for these these kids to do because it was so socially awkward but it turns out like 90 percent of the time people say oh okay it wasn't like they were old or injured you know the you it's know funny. The goes, oh, that's interesting
0: yeah,
2: yeah. or you know, what justin's referencing is like if you're in a uh if 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 you're a um you know, a, a line that say Kinkos to make some copies, and there's ten people or whatever, and you go, oh can, "Oh, can I just go go first because I'm really in a hurry and I need to make some copies." It turns out like eighty or ninety percent of the time, people say, "Okay, sure, no one has a problem."
1: That's very interesting. I guess that's related to, uh, you know, this this is valuable stuff if you want to sell your company. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, well, I think I think this is gonna have to. I have this book idea that I want to write
2: someday, which is called. Um, Gotcha. Uh, the, the subtitle would be cognitive biases, logical fallacies, and social dilemmas. We're just going into all of this stuff.
1: I like that. I like the title. Gotcha. Might have to yeah. work on the subtitle there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean,
2: this stuff is fascinating because we're so—it's like we're so predictably manipul- ma- manipulated, and even yeah. if we know it, it's so hard to avoid.
1: It's really true. And I, again, I get back to this this uh, Japan nuked thing. I mean, I was getting. I wrote, a, I wrote an article on my blog was Greece just nuked because suddenly we forgot all about Greece and, uh, <laughs> right it's all Japan. Like, never, like Greece is worse than ever, than ever it was, you know, back from last May, but we've forgotten all about it. It's out of the news cycle. So there's not, you, you can't find a single article about Greece in the wall street journal today. And then it was all Japan for a while. Now, now there's nothing about Japan, but, uh, uh, you know, the, I guess people get bored. Ready to yeah. move on. you got, you got to keep stimulating them and and they they, they will listen to whatever is the latest thing to, you, you, they're being told by the media okay now you have to panic on this and everyone starts screaming ah now it's just ah. so you just have to tell them how to think.
2: So you know we're talking about how the the back the back the how facts can backfire. And I, I read this interesting analysis of the whole bin Laden stuff, which is that, you know, first we're told that he um that he was that there was a bunch of resistance and guys had guns and he had a gun, he's shooting an AK from behind his wife or something. And then it turns like, oh no, it turns out that, you know, only he had a gun, or but then it turns out he didn't have a gun, and that there was no resistance, and then oh, well, it turns out that they apprehended, it, but then just shot him in the head outside in front of his daughter, and it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. But it was like exactly how you'd play it if you were, the, if you were sort of the, um, you know, the PR room at the White House. You'd say, okay, well, look, this is what happened. This is really bad. We're going to look really bad if we say, okay, well, we, we went in there with a bunch of guys, and we just went out and shot him in the head and executed We didn't apprehend him and bring him back and you know, put him in trial for his crimes. What it, but what we do is we say, this is what happened first. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, resist, he resisted, and you know, we had no choice. And then you slowly leak out corrections, but the corrections don't take effect. They don't take hold.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, like, again, because I don't read the news at all. I didn't even know about any of those corrections. I just knew the massive, big headline, oh, we killed, uh, uh, you know, Osama. So, yeah. but yeah, you're right. It makes sense for the White House. Everything the White House did made sense in that. Like, it made sense for them to, to kill him if it was illegal, because you don't want to bring him back to trial, because how? Com- that's $100 billion to, to try this guy. So... Well, then they are also the FBI... The FBI- that they
2: they they didn't necessarily even though he had taken some kind of credit for it they didn't necessarily have any direct evidence that he was behind 9-11 so it'd be hard to try him
1: yeah and there's no new information you're going to get from him you just take his computer and figure it all out and that's where you get all the information anyway
0: he'd have he'd have a soapbox and he'd be able to talk to his followers a little bit you know
1: yeah and then and then there's potentially um ways the terrorists can kidnap people and use leverage you know give us osama back so who knows i have i have literally I have no opinion on it. Like to be president of the United States has got to be a hard job. Like when you, when anybody announces, okay, I'm running for president, it's the same thing as saying, okay, at some point in my life, I'm going to be in charge of, of killing somebody. <laughs> and yeah. so it's a, it's a hard job. It's a hard thing to stand up to do.
0: So James, you said before the show started that you'd like to turn the show back on us. And I know we're an hour and 10 in, so I, I thought that might be a fun, fun thing to do. So I was wondering what you're thinking.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, it, it, it started a little bit with me asking you about, you know, audio versus transcript. Like I think people would read the more people would read this transcript than, than, uh, uh, watch the, or listen to the audio. So what's, what's your goal really? Like, how are you going to build this up as a business and get, and get listenership?
0: Justin? Oh, that's to me. <laughs> you well, don't want hey.
1: ask a question, Justin, it's your answer. Hopefully.
0: Uh, well, I mean, so and this is something that Jason and myself discuss um, every now and again, and we, we kind of have different, differing opinions. Um, it, it it sort of depends on the phase that we're at. I mean, at the moment, I'm pretty much happy with what we're doing, and we're, we're having our weekly discussions, and we're talking about our businesses, and our listeners are in the same place as us. And what I'm expecting is, as time goes by and we become more successful, we'll probably get more listeners. and. Personally, I'll feel more confident when I'm more successful in business to have those extra listeners. So I'm kind of happy with, with where it's at right now. And I'm just hoping to grow in business. And then the podcast will be like a, I don't know, like we'll hopefully move along with that.
2: That's sort of your growth strategy. So that's so I guess that answers the question of how how we plan to grow it, right? Which is that we think that, or you think that if we become more successful through our actual businesses, that that will grow TechZinc.
0: I, th- I think so because I think people will take us, you know, more seriously about the kind of business advice that we give because we will be walking the talk, as it were. Yeah, no,
1: but you <laughs> know, I don't know. I, I, and let me comment on that. I don't know if I believe that because look at, and I'm just playing devil's advocate here. We're having a discussion. Look at the co- the guy who wrote Rich Dad Poor Dad. As far as we know, that guy never had any success in business. He kind of claimed he had some real estate success, but. Well, a lot of some investigations show that might not necessarily be the case. I don't know the facts. I'm just, I'm just guessing. But yeah. uh, uh, yet the guy became one of the most successful finance authors ever. Like clearly he's successful at that. And mm-hmm. he he spoke to an audience. He had something to say, which is the most important thing really. And uh, uh, he became super successful. And, and clearly you've started a lot of businesses. So you know what you're talking about. Like you, you've, you you've been involved in many, many startups. So You could say whatever you want.
0: I guess another thing I'm thinking about is time and dedication. And what what I've really learned, if I've learned anything, is that it's the amount of attention and focus that you give to one thing is how successful it is. So I sort of need to make a choice. They're just talking from my personal perspective. Do I focus on building a media business and building texting and growing out that audience and all the marketing and everything that goes with that? Or do I focus on growing Plugio, which is my other business? And my, my feeling is, is that Plugio is already making me money. It's already got a a growth rate of like 20% a month. I need to focus on that and grow that. And then I think that, um, that by doing that, the the texting will grow as well. So it's almost like I'm making a decision of which, where to put the, you know.
1: (laughs) sounds like a rationalization. No, but that, that does make a lot of sense. like if you're, if you have one business that you think you could build up and sell, Okay, because your goal to plug you. You're not, not going to make, like, a salary from that for the next 40 years. You, you want to build it up so that Google comes or LinkedIn comes and wants to buy your company now. That's, for, not,
0: that, for, that's not really my goal. My goal is to just to just grow the, grow the monthly income and just have, have that to live off and then start a second business or whatever that is, and then uh-huh. at some stage have enough money where I can take more of an artisan approach because I, I feel that working on something like texting is more like it, – it, it takes me back to my days of being a musician, right? It's more – it it, it's, it sounds kind of strange, but it's more fun than business in an, in another kind of way. But it's almost like I feel like I don't deserve to have a really big successful uh, thing that's just fun.
1: <laughs> I, and you know, I think I hear where you're coming from. It's that deserve thing that's hard. That's I have the same I have the same personal issue on like the blog. Uh, you know, because I'm not Larry Page. Who am I to you know? have the hundred rules for being an entrepreneur or whatever, like, you know, we each have, there's always, you know, as they say in New York city, their big truism is no matter how rich you are, there's always someone richer. And that's totally true (laughs) in New York city. Um, And there's never a level by which you can be satisfied. I mean, there's, there's a great story uh, from Joseph Heller, the, the writer of cash 22. He's at this party in the Hamptons. And there's all these hedge fund managers around, and one guy comes up to him and says, See that guy over there? That guy's made more money last month than all the money you've made from all of your books combined. And Joseph Heller, said, Joseph Heller says, uh, Well, he has one thing, or no, well, I, I, he says, I have one thing that that guy's never gonna have. And the other guy laughs and says, What? And Joseph Heller says, Enough, you know, which is right. a, a really good point that you are, you know, you could deserve whatever you want to deserve, to, to make texting a success and be a, you know, be the artisan thing that, that blows up for you. But, but it's hard. I, I, I the, the question about, uh, is about your book because you, you, you wrote,
2: you just recently released a book called how to be the luckiest person alive or in the world. Yes. Yes. Alive. And so first question is, did you find a publisher or did you self publish? And the uh, second question will be based on like, uh, your audience that you've built up through blog, how has that affected the, you know, the pickup on the book?
1: Uh, the first question is, I've I've published, this is the sixth book I've done. The first five books had major mainstream publishers and I've described on, the, on my blog, actually, I had a post um, uh, describing all of my advances, all of my book sales, like right down to the exact numbers. And it's just not worth it to use a publisher ever. So from now on, I'm self-publishing. And this was the first example of it. I self-published. It was really easy. I'm actually going to have a blog post up in the next few days about just the mechanics of how I did it and why I did it. And uh uh definitely my I you know, I haven't promoted it at all yet. I just have it kind of on the side of my blog, but I'm gonna write a post promoting it and be a lot more active once it's available on the Kindle. I'm gonna put it on the Kindle for 99 cents, but it takes a few weeks for them to format it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna promote it a lot more heavily. Once, uh, it goes out there, although I've offered in one or two posts to send a free PDF to anybody who writes to me at out the at gmail.com. But, uh, uh, it's done well. I mean, I've already had more sales or, you know, readership on this book than half of my other five books. Wow. So- and you, re- you released it. What, how long ago? A couple weeks? Uh, yeah, about two weeks ago. But I, I almost wouldn't say I've released it yet. Like I've done almost no. I can't say I've done no promotion, but I've done almost no promotion in the sense that I'm going to do a lot of promotion uh, in, in a couple of weeks.
0: Do you think you'll make serious money from it?
1: No, but that's not my goal. My goal is actually uh, to just continue building my personal brand uh, and and extending my reach out there in, in this medium of, of books uh, and. I think I'm going to do a, a book every month or two for forever. Like uh, every
0: every month. That's yeah.
1: Amazing. Like I, I, like the next book I'm thinking and I'm starting to, to get the material together now is just, you know, th- this book, the, the, how to be the luckiest person alive. This was some personal experiences and a lot of advice driven and a lot of entrepreneurship stuff. And uh, also just general, um, I don't want to call it self-help, but you know, how to be lucky type article.
2: Self-actualization kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. And uh, the next book's going to be kind of a riff on the uh, Gurdjieff book, Meetings with Remarkable People. I'm uh, going to have a similar title and focus more on my articles about like Mark Cuban and Jim Cramer and other uh, sort of well-known people I've worked with and what I've learned from them and kind of a book of all the mentors that I've had. So that's going to be the next book.
0: How many pages long are the book?
1: Um, The first one's 166 pages, uh, and the second one will be similar. They'll all all be similar. Um, The the third book is going to be my guide to parenting, which is a little tongue-in-cheek. And (laughs) the the fourth book, I might even uh, try fiction. So we'll see.
2: Well, that's Uh, great. Well, now that that you're self-publishing, you don't have to find a publisher, so you can just publish whatever you write, which is what you struggled with earlier in your career, right? You just couldn't get published?
1: You know, I've never had a – well, oh, in the 90s, yeah, I couldn't get published. Now I can just – now I can even find a publisher for my fiction. But there's no point. They You'd submit a book. <laughs> they, they would edit it and ruin it, and uh, then then it would take them a year to publish it. So – They take now, a big – the, then they take a big chunk of the
2: revenue, the sale. Yeah,
1: they take a huge enormous chunk of the revenue. I, you can't make any money on books. You know, here, here's another example. I'm, I'm having a uh, comic book come out in December based on my blog – so and right now we're 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 writing out all the scripts and um, very good illustrators are are working on the initial sketches uh, and I hired a, a professional company that does these kind of comic books to to do it and I'm um, gonna do a comic book as well, which and you're a big comic book fan. You've
2: talked about that on your blog, right? So this yeah, really fits yeah. well with
1: you. Yeah. So- this will this will fit.
2: Okay, so I have a okay. When you talk about uh, self-publishing a book, I mean, uh, do you work with anyone else? Do you have an editor that you work with, or somebody who does layout? I mean, how much of it do you do yourself, and how much do you have to outsource to other people?
1: Uh, I do the on this last book. I did the whole thing myself. So every grammatical error is my fault. Uh, I, (laughs) you know, figured out the cover. I put it all together. I had a little bit of help from my wife, who also. By the way, just published a book in this using the same technique, uh, Claudia Altisher. It's on Amazon right now. Nice. And, uh, uh, her her book actually is much better than mine. It's to the twenty one uh, ways to benefit from having an Ashtanga yoga practice, and uh, incredibly helpful. And uh, she's got a very
2: particular niche right there. Yes, I mean, she's, that, yeah. that's
1: the problem I have, as opposed to her. Uh, topic. She can pick anything about yoga and write about it. And it doesn't even matter if the quality of the writing is high or low, like if it fits her niche and brings up important ideas and topics, then it's, it's a good post for me. I sort of feel like it's a good post if the topic is interesting and the writing has to be, you know, a plus. So I, 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 my top, my, my blog is almost too broad. But uh, it's always an issue I'm kind of personally grappling with, but yeah she's got a very good niche driven uh book and blog
2: what uh, kind of uh i mean how many are, how many sales are you hoping to reach? Do you have any goals or in estimates of what you what you think you can do with uh your first book, yeah, I, your first I think with, book?
1: with this first one yeah, I'm not trying to be overly ambitious i I'm aiming for like twenty or thirty thousand uh and that would beat my best selling book, which was about fourteen thousand copies. And uh, and that, by the way, was a bestseller in the finance space because uh, uh, it was seventy dollars a book. Uh, so wow. so Bar- Barons loved it, and uh, you know everybody loved the book. Uh, uh, but so, so, which book was that? Trade like a hedge fund. Okay, and right. It was okay. my very first book. But uh, so, if I get twenty or thirty thousand out there, I'm happy. That that's that's a first good stab. And I know it's a, it's a short enough book; it's easy to read. So I know of those twenty thousand. Most people will read it as opposed to most books that go out there that nobody reads. So, uh, you know, if, if I could do better than that, it's a home run. But then the next book and the next book, I hope to continue to do better and better. And I have That's one last awesome. question for you, um,
2: about, uh, you know, and then we can let you go. I know you probably have actually other things to do in the world. Besides <laughs> no, <that. never. laughs> yes. So uh, you're writing a, a blog post every day and they're substantial. They're not just a, uh, you know, three sentences. I mean, you 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 look like you're putting some effort into them and you're writing a, you know, a, you just wrote a book, you're writing another book. I mean, I, you know, how much, how many hours a day are you sitting down writing it?
1: Uh, a lot. Like this is really my main focus right now. And, uh, and look, I'm in. I'm not over the top. I, you know, I've had some successes, but it's not like over the top. I, I never did a LinkedIn. And uh, I, I, but I'm invested in about 14 different private ventures. So there's, there's no more investing I want to do. Like I've already got all my investments out there. And I'm not a micromanager type of investor. Like I'll hear from them when I when they sell their company. Um, <laughs> So, so, uh, you know, so, so this really, this blog is my main focus. Like I love it. And I, I spend all day long on it at night. Last night at, or two nights ago, uh, I, I go to sleep very early. I go to sleep around like eight, eight 30, but around 10 or 11, I had an idea that I wanted to change something. And I came down and, and rewrote a blog post over the next several hours. Like I'm thinking about it and writing all the time.
0: It's working right. out very well for you. It's Thank you very really much. Really, really I really nice.
1: appreciate that. I, I My biggest stress in life right now is I hope I can, I know the quality has been good so far, and I hope I can just keep that quality up. So that's my stress. Well, oh, I what love you're it.
2: It's, 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 it's one of the few sites that I literally type into the URL to go to every day. Okay. I'm like, okay. I'm time for some James Altucher. Like, I can't figure out this problem. I'm going to go read see what he has to say today. It's okay. like four sites <laughs> that do that. So uh, I, I, love, I love your stuff. Well, James, I have about fifty more questions, but we're just gonna have to try and entice you to come back on the show. Yeah,
1: more. yeah, no, I'm happy to. I, I there's a couple of topics I think could be fun for the next one. So so let's do it. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot. All, All right.
2: right, thanks. A wrap. We're out.